There is no substitute for the preaching and teaching of God's Word. Each weekday on Enjoying the Journey, Scott Pauley leads us in a brief study of Scripture. Today, on the Weekend Pulpit, we are happy to share a full-length Bible message given through Scott's pulpit ministry. These messages were recorded live in a local church or gospel event in recent days. It is our prayer that the message will be a help to you today. Let's open the Word of God to John chapter 21, would you please? And maybe your Bible's already falling open naturally to this section of Scripture. That's good. That's very good. Uh, You know, many people say that the gospel according to John is their favorite gospel record. Let me just say this. There's only one gospel. Only one. Uh, Excuse me. There's only one true gospel. And that gospel is the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are not four gospels. They are four gospel records. They're four angles, if you will, of the same thing. We're reading about the same life, the same ministry, the same atonement, the same resurrection power. We're just reading it under inspiration of the Holy Spirit from four different men who were led of God to make this particular record. And maybe John's your favorite. I don't know. Let's, let's just find out. How many of you would say John is your favorite? Would you raise your hand? John's your favorite of the four. How many of you would say Matthew? Just curious. Poor Matthew. He gets one vote. Maybe we should start reading Matthew, right? How many of you would say Mark? That's my favorite, Gospel of Action. And how many of you would say Luke, the doctor's letter? Good. And how many of you never read the Gospel so you don't know? Would you raise your hand, please? You've got to pick one, you know. Uh, my, my professor in college used to say his favorite was whichever one he was reading at the time. And I like that. Because all scriptures give my inspiration of God and is profitable. But I bring you to John chapter 21. And these are amazing verses. Look at verse number 1. After these things, Jesus showed himself again. I must tell you, I think the word again is one of the greatest words in the whole Bible. Aren't you glad God is a God of the again? Let me ask you a question. Did you need forgiven once, or do you need to be forgiven again and again and again? Did you need to hear from heaven one day, or do you need to hear from heaven again every day? I tell you, there's something wonderful about the God who is always the same, and again and again is at work in our lives. After these things, Jesus showed himself again to the disciples at the Sea of Tiberias, And on this wise showed he himself. There were together Simon Peter and Thomas called Didymus and Nathanael of Cana and Galilee and the sons of Zebedee and two other of his disciples. Let me just tell you, that's a boat full right there. Not just because there's seven of them, but because of who the seven are. We'll come back to that verse in a moment. Look at verse number three. Simon Peter saith unto them, Can't you hear him? I go a fishing. And they say unto him, We also go with thee. They went forth and entered into a ship immediately, and that night they caught nothing. Pause and look at me just for a moment. I've heard lots of preachers preach against Peter going fishing. I'm I'm not taking that as my theme tonight, and I'm not scolding anybody else for preaching on it, but the reality is Jesus didn't scold him for that. As a matter of fact, later in the chapter, he's going to ask him what he loves most, and we'll come to that tomorrow night, God willing. But the reality is, Peter is a a man trying to find out what's next. The Lord doesn't know, hasn't made plain rather to, to Simon Peter all that Peter is to do. Peter doesn't know yet what all God has planned for him. And so he goes back to what he does know. He goes back to fishing. Some people think he needed a distraction. He needed something to fill his time. Some others say, well, he needed to eat. He had to pay for his his expenses. I don't know why he went fishing, but one thing I do know is when he went, a whole bunch of other people went with him. And so now there's a boatload of disciples on the sea. They fish all night long, seven experienced fishermen, and they catch a grand total, are you ready for it, wait for it, of absolutely zero fish. Now, I've been fishing many times where I caught nothing. But if you're an experienced fisherman and you fish all night and catch nothing, that's a pretty bad night. Absolutely nothing to show for it. The Bible says in verse 4, But when the morning was now come, Jesus stood on the shore, but the disciples knew not that it was Jesus. Some people believe, some people believe 
that this was the Sunday following Resurrection Sunday. So a week has gone by. Now, if that's true, think about this. The previous Saturday night, what did they have? Nothing. But on Sunday morning, what did they find? He's risen from the dead. And a week later, here they are, still in the holding pattern, still waiting on the Lord, still trying to figure out what the future holds and coming up with nothing. And then at the next morning, Jesus shows up and reveals himself yet again to them. The Bible says in verse 5, Then Jesus saith unto them, Children, have ye any meat? And they answered him, what's the answer, church? No. And he said unto them, Cast the net on the right side of the ship, and ye shall find. They cast therefore, and now they were not able to draw it for the multitude of fishes. Therefore that disciple whom Jesus loved, that's the one who's writing this book, John, saith unto Peter, I wish I could say this like he must have said it. It's the Lord. He didn't say, it is the Lord. Mm -mm. He said, I know who that is. It's the Lord. Now, when Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he girded his fisher's coat unto him, for he was naked. And it cast himself into the sea. And the other disciples came in a little ship, for they were not far from land, but as it were 200 cubits, dragging the net with fishes. And soon then, as they were come to land, they saw a fire of coals there, and fish laid thereon and bread. And Jesus saith unto them, Bring of the fish which you have now caught. And Simon Peter went up and drew the net to land full of great fishes, and hundred and fifty and three. And for all there were so many, yet was not the net broken. And I've, I've heard some Bible teachers try to tell you why there was 153. Can I tell you why there was 153? Because there was 153. Now, there may be some significance to it, but it's not plain in the text. So you have a hard time reading into what God doesn't say. And I'll tell you one thing it does tell me is how exact the Holy Spirit is. Aren't you glad our God is a God of exactness? They knew exactly how many fish it was. And the Holy Ghost said to John when he penned this, this gospel record, I want you to put the number down just so everybody will know they didn't come up with one fish or, or 11, one, one for each of the apostles that were left, or seven, one for each that were in the boat. No, they got 153. Aren't you glad we serve a God that does exceeding abundantly above all we could ask or even think? 153. Verse 12, Jesus saith unto them, don't you love these words? Come and dine. And none of the disciples durst ask him, Who art thou, knowing that it was the Lord? Jesus then cometh and taketh bread and giveth them and fish likewise. This is now the third time that Jesus showed himself to his disciples after that he was risen from the dead. In fact, if you compare Scripture with Scripture, this is the third time. When it says the third time, it's a reference to the occasions when he showed himself to them in a group of disciples. You remember there are at least ten appearances of the risen Christ to his followers after he rose from the dead. And if you compare Scripture with Scripture, take all the gospel records and lay them alongside one another, you'll find that actually this particular occasion, though it's the third time he appears to a group of the disciples, it is about the seventh of the ten appearances. In other words, they've been seeing him quite a bit now. They've been hearing quite a bit that he's risen from the dead. Does it puzzle you just a little bit that they did not recognize who he was immediately? Do you think it's significant? that though they've caught glimpses of him and rejoiced with him and even, even had a meal together in the upper room, that now come breakfast time, they're not exactly sure who it is, at least from a distance. Tonight, I want you to go with me to Christ's classroom by the sea. That's what John 21 is. It's Christ's classroom by the sea. Your pastor is a, is a teacher. And by the way, that's a very good thing. Those pastors are to be apt to teach. I love to teach the Bible. As a matter of fact, the way I was trained was that when you preach, you should teach. And meaning by that, that every time you give a Bible message, people ought to learn the Scriptures and they ought to 
They ought to learn something about what the Word of God is teaching. So that was just the way I was trained and brought up. As a matter of fact, for nearly 20 years, five days a week, I went into a classroom. And I loved it, absolutely loved it, until God led us into full-time evangelistic work. Though we were involved in the church and administrative things, one of my favorite all-time things to do was to go into a classroom with a bunch of students and teach the Word of God. I enjoy teaching. Now, I must tell you that from a teacher's perspective, our Lord's method of teaching was unique. Unique. He didn't teach in a classroom. He didn't get everybody together and say, all right, all you disciples, get your notepads out, get, get ready to take notes. That's not the way he taught. Jesus taught as he went, and he held class in some strange places, under a fig tree, on the bow of a ship, out in the middle of an open field, surrounded by thousands of people, down by the, down by the water with a fish in his hands. I'm telling you, he just taught everywhere. And in John chapter 21, I love this truth, Christ is holding class again by the sea. And how do I know that? Am I, am I suggesting that to you? No, no, that's in the text. Look at verse number 5. Jesus saith unto them, what's the first word out of his mouth in verse 5, church? Children. And that's not a demeaning word. He's not talking down to them. But I do think this is very interesting. It is the only time in all the gospel records that Jesus used that word for his disciples. It's the only time. How many of you believe the Holy Spirit always chooses words very carefully? When he uses them a lot, that's for emphasis. And when he uses them sparingly, that's for emphasis. And when Jesus calls them children, now wait a minute. These are full-grown men. These are rough, tough fishermen. These are men that can hold their own on the sea. And Jesus, the master, the one who made the fish, the one who made the sea they're fishing on, looks them in the face and calls them children. What is that supposed to mean? The word that he actually uses here for children literally means one who needs to be instructed. I love that. In other words, watch this. Here are guys who lived with him for three and a half years. Wouldn't you think after walking with Jesus for three and a half years, you would have arrived? Let me give you a little practical application tonight. I don't care how long you've been a Christian or how many church services you've been in or how many revival meetings you've attended. There's not one of us that has arrived. Matter of fact, you're not going to arrive till you get to heaven someday. Then you can say you've arrived because you're going to be like Jesus. You're going to see him as he is, and you're going to be made perfectly like him. But until that day, we're all still on the journey, or excuse me, we're all still in the classroom, and Jesus is trying to teach every one of us. And I want to say to you, it matters not age or even stage of Christian experience. Every person in this room, including the man speaking to you at this moment, has much to learn. And so Jesus pulls up not a desk, but a boat. Not a notepad, but a net. And he says, you know, fellows, I think I'd like to just teach you here a little bit. It's interesting to me as we look through this passage how this classroom unfolds. For example, look at verse number 2. Notice who he teaches. In verse number 2, God gives us the names of some of the men in the boat. The first, the leader, Simon Peter, the one who suggested they go fishing to start with. And let me just pause here and say, first of all, God always teaches his teachers. And if you think you're going to lead somebody else, you must first be a follower. And if Simon Peter's ever going to learn to feed the sheep and feed the lambs later in the same passage of Scripture, he's first going to have to learn something that Jesus is trying to teach him in the opening of John chapter number 21. And look who's second in the boat. There's Thomas. We just studied Thomas yesterday. You mean the doubter? That's right, the doubter. Thomas called Didymus. Didymus means twin. I've often wondered who Thomas's twin was. Is that you? Is it me? Here's the skeptic, the cynic. Trying to figure it all out. By the way, I love this. Thank you, Lord, for this truth. The first two names on the list both had great failures. And what's Jesus doing? Jesus is saying to them, look, fellas, I know you blew it. I mean, you really blew it. Simon, I remember. You cursed and swore and said you didn't even know me. But I want you to know it's all right. I've got some things I still want to teach you. He looks the doubter in the face and says, I know, I know, you wouldn't believe till you'd seen me. You wouldn't take anybody else's word for it, but it's all right. I want you to know something. I still have things to teach you. Aren't you glad that the Lord doesn't give up on us? 
Oh, what a wonderful teacher we have. Not very good students sometimes. We have a wonderful teacher. Look at the rest of the class. And Nathaniel of Cana in Galilee. <laughs> Who's that? Did you know this is the, only the second time we find his name in this book, and the first time was all the way in the first chapter. Isn't that interesting? Like bookends on the book. He shows up in the first chapter and the last chapter. Do you know what he was doing in the first chapter? In the first chapter, he is, he's brought to Jesus, and when he's a little skeptical when he gets there, and when he sees Jesus, Jesus says to him, Nathaniel, before you ever came to see me, when you were sitting under the fig tree, I saw you. And Nathaniel looks at him and says, you have to be the Messiah. And Jesus says to him something that I think is so wonderful. He says, Nathaniel, thou shalt see greater things than these. It's powerful. Hey, Nathaniel, you're impressed because I knew your name? Look, God knows everybody's name. You're impressed because I knew what you were thinking about, friend. God knows what you're thinking about at this moment. God knows you better than you know you. But Jesus says, I want you to know, i got even greater things in store for you than that. And so now here we are at the end of the book. Aren't you glad Nathaniel's in the boat? I'm just glad he's in the boat. He's going to see the risen Christ, have breakfast with him, He's going to see one of the most amazing miracles Christ ever performed. He's going to see greater things. And let me just tell you, in the authority of the Word of God, I don't care how far along on this journey you are, how many answers to prayer you've seen, souls saved you've seen, or blessings even on this church, I'm going to tell you, our God is always a God of greater things, and He has much more for every one of us. He still says, call unto me, and I will answer thee, and show thee great and mighty things which thou knowest not. You ever stop and think about how much you don't know? You ever think about how much God does know? And God says, if you'll let me, I'll let you in on some of what I know. How many of you would like to get in on some of what God knows? Well, that's why we're going to school tonight. So Peter's in the boat. Thomas is in the boat. Nathaniel's in the boat. Look at it. The sons of Zebedee. James and John are in the boat. And so the whole inner circle is represented here. Here are the sons of thunder. And by the way, they, they don't have much to say, do they? And they don't have much to show for all their dynamic personality. We'll come back to that thought in just a moment because I want to remind you of something. The Lord doesn't need you. You need him. See, in fact, God doesn't need my strength. <laughs> I need God's strength. And the only way to get to God's strength is first I have to get to my weakness. Matter of fact, in the book of Job, the Bible says God weakeneth the strength of the mighty. Now, be honest. You ever woke up in the morning and said, oh, Lord, make me weak today? I doubt it. And a lot of days I've said, oh, Lord, strengthen me today. But I'm going to tell you what God does. God makes you weak first. So you realize it's not your strength, it's his strength. And the sons of Zebedee are going to have to learn that. And then the Bible says there's two other of his disciples. Who are they? I have no idea. So I got an idea. Let's me and you jump in the boat tonight. What do you think? These unnamed, unknown disciples, could they represent us? This is who the Lord is teaching. And only that, would you notice, please, when he's teaching. Look down to verse number 14. The Bible says it's now the third time that Jesus showed himself to his disciples. Now watch this. After that he was risen from the dead. Somewhere I want you to make a note that Jesus spent 40 days with his disciples after his resurrection. 40 days. I'm going to tell you, if I could have picked any period of time to have been with Christ, I'm sure the three and a half years of public ministry was wonderful, but if I could have picked any time, I would love to have spent those 40 days with him. Can you imagine 40 days with the risen Christ? And why? I would challenge you to study the word of God carefully. The word... The number 40 is found 146 times in Scripture. And it is always significant. I'm not on some numeric tangent tonight. There's a great principle behind the number 40. Moses was on the backside of the desert in Midian for 40 years. He would go up on the mountain to meet with God for 40 days and 40 nights. The children of Israel would send spies into the land of Canaan, and they would be there for 40 days. 
Because of their unbelief, God would have them to wander in the wilderness for how long, church? Forty years. Goliath would taunt Israel for 40 days. The floodwaters would be on the entire earth for 40 days and for 40 nights. Elijah would go 40 days without food and water. The Lord Jesus Christ would endure a 40-day temptation. You'll find 40 days in the book of Jonah, yet 40 days and Nineveh should be overthrown. Ezekiel would be told to lay on his right side as a sign to the nation of Israel for, guess how many days? Forty days. And now suddenly Christ spends exactly 40 days with his disciples. Oh, may the Spirit of the living God give us understanding right here. Don't miss this. In Scripture, 40 is always symbolic of God proving It is a time of teaching and it is a time of testing. By the way, God always tests on everything he teaches. So if God is growing you and maturing you and building you, be very sure of this, there'll be some moment where God will test you on whether you actually got a hold of the truth he's trying to put into your heart and mind. And every time you find 40 in Scripture, it is a proving, a a refining time. And I, I love this thought. Oh, thank you, Lord, for this thought. Jesus would not simply die and be buried and rise from the dead and say, I'm out of here. No, he would die, be buried, and rise from the dead and say, now, fellas, look at me. Pay real close attention because we're going to have a 40-day class and you're going to need everything I'm about to show you because soon I'm not going to be here with you. And you're going to need the spiritual truth I'm about to give you. I love revival meetings. I love series of meetings. But let me ask you a question. What would happen in this church if this church set aside 40 days to seek the Lord? 40 days. We have a three-day meeting. Some people have a five-day meeting. In my grandpa's generation, they have a six-week meeting. That sounds radical now, doesn't it? Somebody said an eight-week meeting, a two-month meeting. I mean, good night. That's a long meeting. Well, what if we set aside 40 days to seek the Lord? What would happen in our homes we limited the media for 40 days and spent more time reading the Scriptures and praying together. What would happen in my own life if I separated myself consciously, purposely, intentionally from some things for 40 days to give God my undivided attention? You want to have real revival? Don't let it stop with a three- or four-day revival meeting. See, the goal of this is not a revival meeting. It's a revived life. And there's a world of difference between the two. I'm not under the guise that me being in town preaching a handful of sermons to you is going to change your life. Look, only one person can do that. That's the Lord himself. But God doesn't want to just do that for some little parenthesis. He wants to do that every day of your life. When I come to a church like this, I'm always praying for something. I'm praying that God would somehow set something in motion that would last for all eternity. You ever line up a bunch of dominoes, knock the first one down? Watch the chain reaction. Look, please, that's all I'm praying for. I'm praying, oh, Lord, just do that this week. I got a text message yesterday from a church in another state where I was several weeks ago on the Lord's Day. And that particular Lord's Day was very unusual. We had two married couples get saved. That's a strange thing, isn't it? Wonderful, but strange. Don't you normally see married people, two couples, different parts of the building come to be saved. I rejoice in that. I thank God for it. Let me tell you what I really thank God for. Yesterday, the pastor of that church sent me a text, and he said, I just thought you'd like to know that both of those couples have been coming faithfully to church, and one of them brought a bunch of children today to church with them, and some of those children got saved. Look, you ever think, do you ever think, What we're going to meet at the nail-pierced feet of Jesus someday? I'm telling you, we need to say, oh, God, be so thorough with us. Get out of us whatever you got to get out of us and put in us whatever you got to put in us, not just for now but for all eternity. I walked through this little cemetery behind your church today. Does that belong to the church? I didn't think so. Now, this is going to sound strange to you. I like cemeteries. My daddy was in the cemetery business before he started preaching. 
told the preacher yesterday, we'd go on family vacation. You know, whatever your dad does for a living, it's what you're noticing. We'd be driving down the road, and somebody would say, that's a nice cemetery. Sound like the Adams family on vacation, you know. <laughs> Strange. It was normal to us. I like cemeteries. I like epitaphs. I got down on my knees out there today. There's an old grave marker. You can barely make it out. And it said this, not lost, just gone before. I like that one. I was by myself, and I walked around out there a little bit, started to leave, and I just stood there for a minute just talking to the Lord, and I thought to myself, this will be all of us someday. Be all of us someday. Today's Earth Day. Anybody hear that? You know what we need? We need an eternity day. That's what we need. We need a day where everybody pauses for just a moment and realizes this earth isn't going to last forever and you're not going to be forever on it. Matter of fact, you're not going to be long on it and real soon you're going to stand before a holy God and give an account of the one life God gave you. Are you being a good student? We see not only who he teaches and when he teaches, but notice where he teaches. Everything's significant. In verse number 1, the Bible says he's teaching at the Sea of Tiberias. I'm looking forward to taking a group of people to Israel next year. Somebody might look at that and say, the Sea of Tiberias, what is that, the Sea of Tiberias? Did you know that the Sea of Galilee has many names? It really depends on which side of it you're on. It tells you something about the geographical location of where you are and how that particular group of people referred to it, but it's the same body of water. Now, I'm going to show you something wonderful. Don't you love the Word of God? Hold your place here, and I want you to go back with me in your Bible to Luke chapter 5 for just a minute. Stay with me a second. We're going somewhere. By the way, there'll be a test at the end of this class tonight, so pay real close attention. Look at Luke chapter 5. This is where it all started with these same disciples. Look at Luke chapter 5, verse number 1. And it came to pass as the people pressed upon him to hear the word of God. Oh, I like that. I'd like to preach on that tonight. Wouldn't it be great to be around a place where people were pressing to hear the word of God? we got to get this. we got to know God. we got to hear from heaven. They're pressing on Jesus to hear the word of God. He stood by the lake of what? Gennesaret. I want you to circle the lake of Gennesaret. And I will show you something shocking. The Lake of Gennesaret, the Sea of Galilee, and the Sea of Tiberias are the same body of water. So here, watch now, are the same disciples with the same Christ at the same body of water. Read on. Look at verse 2. It's all two ships standing by the lake, but the fishermen were going out of them and were washing the nets. And he entered into one of the ships, which was Simon's, and prayed him that he would thrust out a little from the land. And he sat down and taught the people out of the ship. And when he had left speaking, he said unto Simon, Launch out into the deep and let down your nets for a draught. And Simon answering said unto him, Master, we have toiled all the night and have taken what? Does that sound vaguely familiar to anyone? Nevertheless, at thy word, I'll let down the net. And when they had this done, they enclosed a great multitude of fishes and their net break, and they beckoned unto their partners, which were in the other ship, that they should come and help them. And they came and filled both the ships so that they began to sink. I've circled in my Bible in verse 5 the word nothing, and in verse 7 the word filled. Let me tell you, only God can do that. It's all in vain unless the Spirit of the Holy One come down. Only Christ brings fullness. Look at the response in verse 8. When Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees saying, Depart from me, for I'm a sinful man, O Lord. By the way, you get a real glimpse of Jesus Christ. You can't be the same. You can't be the same. Peter saw him and said, Lord, depart from me. I'm not worthy to even be in your presence. John got a glimpse of him and played like a dead man. I'm telling you, you get a glimpse of Christ and who he is and who you are. It will change you forever. I love this word, oh. He says, oh, Lord. You all still believe every word is given by inspiration of God? You know what oh is? Oh is a heart word. It's a word that defies definition. Excuse me, it's what you say when you don't know what to say. Oh, Lord. 
was reading some time ago about the Welsh Revival, and one of the first-hand observers of the Welsh Revival said that one of the marks that real revival was about to come to a church in Wales was when the old returned to the prayers. I'm going to tell you what's happened to our churches. We've lost the old. We know how to pray, but there's no heart in it. Oh, God, save him. Oh, Lord, bring her home. Oh, God, I've sinned. Depart from me, oh, Lord, for I'm a sinful man. I'm going to tell you something. When your heart gets engaged with Christ, it changes everything. But now don't miss this. Notice that in Luke chapter number 5, the Lord had to bring them to a place where they realized that their best was not good enough before he could give them his best. When you come to John chapter 21, what's going on? The exact same thing. Watch this, please. He takes them to a familiar place. Could I tell you that Christ's greatest classroom is in the ordinary areas of your life? People think, if I could ever go to wherever, I could really learn something about the Lord. Friend, you don't go to somewhere to learn about the Lord. The Lord comes right where you are. He speaks in the ordinary and the mundane of everyday life. That's where he teaches the great lessons about himself. And what is he doing? He's taking them in John 21, and he's meeting them at the place where they first met him. First truths and first love and first fellowship. And I'm standing here right now with you, but in my mind, I'm sitting in the back of a little classroom. I'm five. And a kind lady is showing me from the Bible how I can have my sins forgiven. And I remember that day. That was a good day. The hymn writer said, glad day, glad day when Jesus washed my sins away. Do you remember that day? Has there ever been such a day? And sometimes when I get a little cold and indifferent to God, and we all get backslidden, everybody gets backslidden sometimes. You know what I do? I like to go back to first love. I like to go back to the day I got saved. I remember running down the hallway and saying to my mother, I got saved today. I was so excited about it. Remember how excited you were about meeting Jesus when you first got saved? You wanted all your family to be saved. You wanted all the neighbors to know about God. Let me ask you a question. What happened to that? Where's our passion gone? I'll tell you what's happened. We've lost the wonder of it all. July 27th, 1989, God called me to preach. I was a kid. I told you a minute last night about starting to preach, but the night God called me to preach, I was so scared. I was just nervous. I was 12. An old country preacher in the hills of West Virginia met me out in the lobby that night, put his arm around me and said, so God's called you to preach. I said, yes, sir. He said, Wonderful. Get your first sermon together. You're going to preach next week in a cottage prayer meeting. And I said, wait a minute. Let's talk about this thing for a second. He said, young man, if you don't start serving God now, you probably never will. And I remember starting. I remember the first message I ever gave behind a pulpit two days after my 13th birthday. It's terribly embarrassing to watch. When my dad feels like he needs to put me in place, he pulls it back out at family gatherings, you know. But when I watch it, you know what I remember? Not what I said. I wept through the message. Couldn't stop crying. I was talking about the Lord. My heart was tender. And sometimes I think, where is that? Some of you know what I'm talking about. You've been at this a while. You've been in church a while. You've heard it all before. And so Jesus says, I tell you what, let's do. Let's do this. Because, see, sometimes the lessons you have to learn in school aren't new lessons. They're the same ones over and over again. You ever notice that? So the Lord takes you back to the lake of Gennesaret and says, hey, fellas, you remember? You remember that night when you told all night, didn't catch anything, and I gave you everything you needed? Yes, Lord. Excuse me, Peter. You remember the night you got down on your knees and said, Lord, depart from me. I'm a sinful man. Yes, Lord. And the Lord says, I want you to remember that. 
See, God brings us back to where we need to be with Him. Look, it is not, it is not about knowing more things about God. It is about coming nearer to God ourselves. As a matter of fact, there's a little phrase I want you to mark in your Bible in John chapter 21. Did you miss it? Look how the story begins and ends. It's used three different times. Look at verse number 1. After these things, Jesus what? Showed what? Himself. Come to the end of the verse. And on this wise what? Showed he himself. Come to verse number 14. This is now the third time that Jesus what? Showed himself. So it brings me right to the crux of the message, and it is not just who he taught and when he taught and where he taught, but what he taught. And here's what he taught. You ready for it? He just taught them about himself. It's funny. People come to a meeting like this, and they want to hear some new thing. They really do. They want to hear some new thing. They, I know they do. They come in, and they say, all right, preacher, tell us something we hadn't heard before. I wish everybody had to preach one sermon in their life, don't you? I really mean it. All the ladies, I mean, I'm talking about all God's children. Just to look at what we get to look at all the time. People come into church, and they plop down in their comfortable seats, and they cross their arms, they look at the preacher and say, All right, you got 30 minutes. Try to tell us something we've heard before. Is it any wonder we've not had revival? Because that's not it. And I must tell you, as a preacher, the temptation going in and out of churches is to try to tell something interesting. That's not what we need. We need a fresh glimpse of Jesus. I prayed before I came in here tonight this, Lord, show us yourself. See, he stands on every shore of life, waving his arms, trying to get our attention. And we just keep fishing. Got to be some fish in this sea somewhere. Got to be something to help my family here somewhere. Got to be something to meet this need somewhere. I'm working harder than I've ever worked. Where's God in all this? I tell you, he's standing on the shore waving at you, trying to get your attention. He's showing himself. I was preaching a few years ago in Florida, and I was preaching for a man that I have the greatest respect for, an older pastor. We're driving down the road together, and we're talking about God's work and spiritual things. And my friend said to me, we're very close, my friend turned and said to me, he said, Scott, I'm going to tell you something. When he said it, I didn't get it. I just didn't get it. But I'm starting to get it. He said to me, Scott, you don't need to know more. You need to see more. I've been mulling on that for several months. You know what I think our problem is? We know so much. And we're missing Jesus. We got a head full of knowledge and a notebook full of notes. And Sunday school classes full of curriculum. But where is Christ in the midst of all of this? When was the last time you were passionate about the Lord and in love with Jesus? When was the last time your own heart was stirred just to be with Him, not to get something from Him, just to be with Him? That is revival. The old North Carolina preacher, Vance Havner, was the one who said, revival is one thing. Revival is God's people falling in love with Jesus all over again. And I'll tell you how we'll know when we've had revival if God's people here fall in love with Jesus all over again. And so, Lord, what is it you want to show us? Let me give you three simple things. I'd like for you to write them down somewhere, and I'll be done. Here's what he showed them. Here's what he's trying to show us. Number one, he showed them they had nothing. Nothing. Look at the last word of verse number three. That night they caught what? Don't miss the power of nothing. God will bring you to nothing. I've marked in my Bible in verse 3 the word nothing and in verse 5 the word no. What's he showing them? He is showing them their poverty without his presence. He is showing them the, the futility of life without his favor. He is showing them their barrenness apart from his blessing. Without me, ye can do what? That's right. 
That was true before the resurrection, and that is true after the resurrection. I don't care who you are or how hard you try. Apart from Christ, you are nothing, and you can do nothing. And sometimes our greatest need is just to see our need. They were like that church in the Revelation that, you know, we got it all together. We got it all together. And God shakes his head and says, you don't know that you're wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. Oh, dear Lord, let us see us like you see us. We dress up good for church. Oh, yes, we do. And carry our Bibles and sing our hymns and pat each other on the back and say our God bless you. And in the midst of all of it, we are living in spiritual poverty. We are living on the leftovers instead of enjoying God's bounty. We are content with a mediocre, anemic, nominal, run-of-the-mill, average, ordinary Christian life. And the God of glory says, I have so much more for you. But you can never have it until first you come to nothing. How would you get saved? Do you know everybody gets saved the same way? That's right. Everybody gets saved the same way. Everybody comes to nothing. You cannot be born again and you cannot enter the kingdom of God and you cannot go to heaven and you cannot have Christ as your Savior until you come to the place where you say, Lord, I'm a helpless sinner and I can't save myself and no church can save me and nobody can save me and nothing I can do can save me. I want you to save me. Look, you've got to come to nothing before you get everything. Let me tell you something God's teaching me. God doesn't just bring you to nothing once. He'll bring you to nothing over and over and over and over again. I must confess to you that at this stage in my life as a 42-year-old man, I thought I'd feel stronger, more capable, more able. (laughs) Isn't it funny when you're starting out and young how capable you feel? I mean, I got all the answers. And you know what God does? Excuse me. He beats the snot out of you. It's exactly what he does. He knocks all that out of you. And you know why? Because God's not going to build you up. He's going to bring you low to build himself up. F.B. Meyer said when I was a young minister, I thought that God's blessings were like wrapped gifts placed on shelves one above another so that the higher a man went in his knowledge of God, the more access he had to all of God's best. F.B. Meyer said, I was wrong. I had it all wrong. He said, God's blessings are like wrapped gifts placed on shelves one below another so that the lower a man goes, the more access he has to God's riches. You know, one of the things I think keeping us from real revival, our own stinking pride. It's easy to confess everybody else's sin. When was the last time you got on your face before holy God and said, Dear Lord, my pride, my stubbornness, my pet sin. See, I can spot your sin at 100 yards and tell you about it too. But what about my sin? And God says, No, first you've got to come to nothing. Here's the second thing he showed them. Don't miss this. He not only showed them that they had nothing, but he showed them that he had everything. (laughs) Don't miss this one, friends. Look, if you miss this one, you miss the whole thing. You miss Jesus. The sufficiency of Christ is seen. In other words, everything they were searching for, he had. By the way, could I just point something out? Who noticed that it was Jesus? Was it Peter? The leader? It was John, the disciple whom Jesus loved. He spotted him through the mist and the fog. He discerned who he was. A.C. Gablin said this. I love this. He said, John's heart of love gave him keen eyesight. I wear these glasses because I need them. I don't like going to the eye doctor. I went to the eye doctor again the other day. Eye doctors weird me out. You know what I mean? They get, and they give that test, better one or two, one or two. That's so confusing to me. But I need it, and I need these because I can't see well at a distance. Up close, I'm all right. Actually, that's starting to change. I'm reading below my glasses now. You know what I'm talking about. But I don't see real well at a distance, but I'm not talking about physical eyesight. I'm talking about spiritual eyesight. Let me ask you a question. Do you have the discernment that comes from a heart that's passionately in love with Jesus Christ? 
I'm going to tell you who the most discerning person in this church is. That's not a position. That's not tenure. Sorry. The most discerning person in this church is the person that lives closest to Christ's heart and is in love with Jesus and what Jesus is in love with. And in that classroom, that was John. Oh, Lord, give me a fresh glimpse of Jesus. Here's what captured me. They got 153 fish in a net, and they're struggling. I mean, the boats are about to sink, and they they finally get them to shore. They're going to have breakfast, right? Did you ever notice this? I want you to come down to verse number 9. As soon then as they were come to land, they saw. That's an interesting term, isn't it? To see more. They saw a fire of coals there, and wait a minute. Fish laid thereon and bread. Did it ever dawn on you Jesus didn't need their fish, he just wanted them? We got to have the 153 fish. We don't have 153 fish. We can't have breakfast this morning. You really think that's true? Somebody said, where'd Jesus get the fish? I have no idea. He created fish to start with. He could have created them sitting right there over the fire. I have no idea where they came from. Here's what I want you to see. Watch this, please. What they told all night looking for, Jesus had for them all along. Because he had everything. And I'm afraid we got families who spend all of their life, excuse me, and all of their money and all of their time trying to find something to fill the emptiness and the void, thinking there's got to be something more out there. Listen to me. And all the while, they're missing Jesus. Because when Christ is in his rightful place, look, he meets every need in your life. You really think God needs your money? He owns a cattle on a thousand hills. Everything you have, he already owns. He doesn't need your money, but he wants your heart. And when he has your heart, you'll give, not because you have to, but because you just love Jesus. And I wonder, are you there? He's showing them their nothing. He is showing them he is everything, but he's showing them one more thing. He is showing them their greatest need for one thing. What was the one thing? We'll read on. Look at verse number 10. Jesus said unto them, Bring of the fish which you have now caught. And Simon Peter went up, drew the net to land full of great fishes. Look down to verse 12. Jesus saith unto them, Mark these words in your Bible. Come and dine. Can I tell you the one thing they needed is the one thing we need, and that is intimate fellowship with Christ alone. That's the one thing we need. We look at me, church. We need it badly. See, the best disciples can get distracted. The best disciples can get discouraged. The, the best disciples can get detoured. The, the best disciples can lack direction. You don't believe me? Look at these seven disciples sitting in a boat, going fishing all night, trying to figure out what the future holds, trying to figure out how they're going to have breakfast the next morning, wondering how the needs are going to be met. Listen to me. If that was true of them, that is true of us. We need fellowship with Jesus. I was meditating on these words, come and dine, last night, and it dawned on me that's what Jesus is going to say to all of us someday real soon. I can't wait for the marriage supper of the Lamb. You know, I love to eat. I really love to eat. I tour America by restaurant. I love to eat. And I'm going to tell you, so I'm looking forward to the marriage supper of the Lamb. But you know why I'm looking forward to it? Not for the food. But to think I get to sit down at the same table with Jesus. Hey, friends, will that be good? You've never been to a meal like that meal. And then it dawned on me, wait a minute. I don't have to wait till then for that to happen. I can do that now. Right now. Come and dine. Pull a chair up to the Lord's table. Look what he's prepared. The, the one thing he's bringing them to is himself. He says to a rich young ruler, you got it all, you got it all, buddy. But one thing thou lackest, what did he lack? He liked Jesus. He said to a, to a busy Martha who was taking care of all the things around the house, but complaining about Mary sitting at Jesus' feet. He said, look, you're coming to that many things, but one thing is needful. What was that? Fellowship with Jesus. 
The Apostle Paul, the greatest Christian they ever lived, will write in Philippians chapter number 3 that he's going to do one thing, this one thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forth into those things which are before. I press toward the mark for the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. The one thing everybody needs is fellowship with Jesus Christ. God's been dealing with me. Not for you, for me. I used to look at meetings and plan my sermons and what I was going to preach every night. and I've stopped doing that. I stopped that. It's not that I don't have sermons. I've got lots of them. It's not that I don't like to plan. I'm a planner. But God won't let me do that. Instead, he's making me just day by day, day by day, depend on him and meditate in the scriptures and pray and find out what he wants that day. Can I tell you what I found? It's been liberating. It's liberating. Can I tell you why? Because Jesus is enough. And I sat in a room the other day with a boy who's struggling with assurance of his salvation, and he's just about to lose his mind. I mean, about to drive himself crazy. And I said to this young man, you want me to help you? Oh, I want you to help me, preacher. I've, I've talked to everybody I know. I've read everything I know. I said, are you ready for it? This is deep. You ready? Yes, I'm ready. I said, Christ is enough. He said, that's it? That's all you're going to say? I said, that's it. Christ is enough. And friends, till we get to the place where the only thing that matters to us is daily, constant communion with Christ and fellowship with Jesus Christ, I want you to know we are never going to have what God has for us. I end with one verse at the end of the Bible. Go to Revelation chapter 3 with me just a moment. Remember Jesus' words, come and dine. You know the verse. Revelation 3 verse 20, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If any man hear my voice and open the door, I will come into him and will sup with him and he with me. And we like to preach this verse to lost people, but actually it was written to a church. It's a revival verse. Years ago I was reading and studying on this verse, and the Lord helped me open something through some things I was reading about this verse that I'd never noticed before. Look at the end of the verse. He says, if you'll just let me in, if you'll open the door, if you'll let me in, I'll not only come in, that's powerful in itself, the indwelling Christ, but look at the end of it. He said, I will sup with you and you will sup with me. And this is what I missed for years. We don't use the old English word sup much anymore, but how many of you know the word supper? That's a happy word right there, my friends. For years I read this and, and I thought what well, Jesus just means we'll have supper together. That's not what he said. Look at the verse. He said, I will sup with you. And then he says, and you will sup with me. You say, what's the difference, preacher? Oh, it's simple, but it's profound. It is this. In the first, he's the guest. But in the second, he's the host. Watch, please. Jesus comes in and he says, I want your life. Pull up a chair. Obviously, that chair is not coming apart, is it? You all bought nice chairs here. He says, come on, come on. I'm going to pull up a chair, and I'm going to sit here at your table, and you bring me whatever it is you want to bring me. Peter, go ahead, bring me your 153 fish. That's all right. Bring it on in. It's not that he has to have it, but he's happy to receive it. And the Lord says, what is that? You confession of sin? Oh, yes, I'll take that. I'll take all of that. Matter of fact, just give me all your sin. I'll take all of that. What's that? You just want to thank me? I like Thanksgiving. I'll have a double helping of that. What is it? You want to talk to me about some things? Sure. I'm listening. Go right ahead. And Jesus says, I'll sup with you. Oh, this is wonderful. There comes a moment when the Lord says, all right, that's enough now. And Jesus rises from the table and clears everything off. And says, now I've got some things for you to feed on. And suddenly the guest becomes the hope. Let me just tell you something, the host. Let me tell you something. Nobody spreads a table like Jesus spreads a table. 
And suddenly, he begins to minister to the deepest needs of your life. You know when that happens? It happens when you come to nothing, when you recognize he's everything, and you get back to one thing, and that one thing is simple fellowship with Jesus Christ. It's been years ago now. My wife and I had just been married a short time, and I was preaching in Alabama. Everybody knows people in Alabama need the Lord, right? The back door opened. An older man came in. I only met him a handful of times in my life. He was a relative, a distant uncle, a great uncle of mine. He had been preaching at the time probably 50 years. He's still alive, still alive, been preaching more than 70 years now. He and his wife came in. They sat in the back, and when I finished the meeting, they came up, and they hugged us, and they said, we don't live far from here. And we came over this afternoon to take you and Tammy to, to eat. They took us somewhere to eat, and then he said to me, he said, I'd like to show you the old farm. Do you have a few minutes? We drove out in the country on a little sandy lane out in the middle of nowhere, and we got out in a beautiful old farm. And the girls went inside and sat down talking, looking at pictures, and Uncle Eustace, Eustace and I walked around the property. And he showed me his orchard, had a little orchard, and had a beautiful little garden and all that. He just is so proud of it. And then he said with a twinkle in his eye, he said, I got one more thing I'd like to show you. Come with me. He took me inside the house. There's an old white farmhouse and up a little set of rickety steps. And we got to the first landing. We didn't turn and keep going up. There was a little tiny, a short door on the right. And he opened it up, and we stepped in to a little tiny room that was no bigger than this, this part of the platform. It had a little twin bed in it. Had a rocking chair over by the window and just books and Bibles strewn everywhere. You could tell it was his spot. She hadn't cleaned that room. And Eustace sat down in the rocking chair, and I sat down on the edge of the bed, and for an hour, he just talked to me. He encouraged me. He helped me. And let me just say to some of you that a little further down the line, an hour spent with a young man teaching him about the Lord and guiding him to God has never wasted time. He helped me. Finally, I stood up, and I said, Uncle Eustace, I've got to get back to the, to the campground where we're at. I've got to speak again tonight. And he said, oh, I understand. I've kept you so long. He said, before you leave, maybe we could have a prayer together. Oh, sure, sure, let's do that. I got down on one side of the bed, and he got down on the other side of the bed. And I, I still remember. He said, Scott, why don't you open us in prayer? And he said, then I'll close it. And so I launched into a prayer. I really wish you could have been there. It was a beautiful prayer. It was beautiful. I said all the right things. You know what I mean. It was spit shine and polished and mechanical. You know, we all have those prayers. You know the one you carry around your pocket and pull it out? There's no oh Lord in it. There's no heart. Just, just words. Religious speeches, that's what they are. I finished my prayer, said amen, and it was quiet in the room. It was deathly quiet. Matter of fact, it was quite so long, I finally opened my eyes to see if Uncle Eustace was still there. And he was there. He was bowed low over the bed. I can see him now. Tears streaming down his face, dripping on the bed. And I watched him for a moment, and then he spoke one word. Father. I'd never heard anybody pray like that man prayed. Never. Haven't been with many since then that prayed like that man prayed. He talked to God like God was sitting on the bed and I was a million miles away. I mean, look, there was no pretense, no show. He didn't care that I was even there. And then he prayed for me. I'd never heard anybody pray for me the way that man prayed for me. And when he finished, I was so under conviction, honestly. If I could have crawled out of the room, I'd have crawled out of the room. The longer he prayed, the smaller my prayer got. And I just thought, that was just a bunch of nothing. That's what it was. It was good for me. I went downstairs and got Tammy, and we got in the car. I didn't say anything. We pulled out in that little dusty lane. We're driving along for a few minutes in silence, and 
Finally, she looked over at me, and she said, something happened to you. And I said, yes. She said, what? I said, I don't know. I don't know. I said, but I know one thing. Whatever that old man, that farmhouse has, I want that. And I know now what it is. It was Jesus. It was simple, sincere communion with Christ that hadn't grown old and stale and sour. It was still fresh. And it was wonderful. And it still is. If this Bible message has been used of God in your life, or we can pray for you in some definite way, please contact us at enjoyingthejourney.org. We hope you will share the message with others who may also be encouraged by it. For additional full-length Bible messages, please visit Dr. Scott Pauley's YouTube channel. Tomorrow is the Lord's Day, and we want to encourage you to be faithful to attend a Bible-preaching church in your area this Sunday. Thank you for listening to The Weekend Pulpit. And don't miss Enjoying the Journey daily devotional podcast each Monday through Friday.